Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleep Podcast Video Store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about those things we can't unsee from the depths. I have a couple of new projects to let you know about. We have an update from the Arctic Horror Podcast, The White Vault. As some of you may already know, they will be launching into their third season this October, branching the story into new and horrific directions probably involving stairways made of teeth. However, they will also be celebrating their new season with a full-blown live show, featuring many of the voices from their first two seasons, as well as a few no-sleep actors like Graham Rowett and Tanya Milojevic. Their live show, which will be taking place in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 19th, is going to also be kicking off the Pod Tales Fiction Podcast Festival. Tickets for the live show are on sale now, and you can listen to The White Vault wherever you find podcasts. The second project is a new book written by friend of the show, Manon Lysette. But this one isn't the dark, nightmarish tales you've come to expect from Manon. It's a children's book titled Little Pumpkin and the Cold Bones. Life in the pumpkin patch is great, until the night Little Pumpkin hears a spooky bedtime story about a creature named Cold Bones. Wanting to protect the pumpkin patch, Little Pumpkin goes on an adventure to stop Cold Bones from stealing everyone's candles and makes an unexpected new friend along the way. This is a great book to introduce your little ones not only to the wonder of reading, but also introduce them to the horror genre in a child-friendly way. That's Little Pumpkin and the Cold Bones by Manon Lysette. You can check the show notes for links to where you can find out more about both the White Vault live show and Manon's new book. And now it's time for some horror stories which are decidedly not child-friendly. So turn down the lights and grab the remote because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we join a criminal psychologist who's interviewing a man accused of murder. Often, when someone's been in prison for heinous crimes, it's easy to tell they're a bit off just by speaking to them. But in this tale, shared with us by author S.H. Cooper, the man in question doesn't quite seem like the killer type. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Matthew Bradford, Peter Lewis, Erica Sanderson, and Jessica McAvoy. So let's delve into this man's tortured mind. And most of all, let's discover if it's true that sometimes even mamas make mistakes.
The first word that came to mind when I met Jeremiah Goodwin was small. He was a short man with close-cropped pale hair and a hunched posture. He looked almost childlike sitting in the office chair, save for the fact that his hands were shackled to his waist. I'd been told it was for my protection, but looking at him then, I found the idea laughable. The mental health facility he was being kept in, one that specialized in caring for violent criminals, didn't appreciate my skepticism. Neither did the prosecution, who had hired me as an expert witness to determine if he was competent to stand trial. Hello, Jeremiah. Hello. He even managed to make his words sound small. I slid into the chair across from him. I'm Dr. Barone, a psychologist. I've come to talk to you today about the charges pending against you. Jeremiah shifted in his seat and the shackles clinked. His only response. He kept his eyes turned to the floor and his face blank. I took a recorder from my bag and placed it on the table between us. I'm going to be recording our conversation and taking notes while we speak. Do you understand? His head bobbed subtly. Can you say your answer aloud? I understand. I sat back in my chair, a professional but relaxed pose that was meant to help my patients feel at ease. Jeremiah remained stiff and hunched. I allowed the silence to stretch between us a little bit, waiting to see if he might speak first. But his lips remained closed in a thin, anxious line. Do you know what charges I'm referring to? More shifting, more chain clinking. Jeremiah? Yeah. Why don't you tell me, in your own words, why you're here? He picked absently at his arm with his nails, digging them into his flesh, pinching and pulling. I waited. Because of Dustin. Please repeat that a bit louder for the recorder. Because of Dustin. And who is Dustin? Dustin Claremont. He is... uh... Jeremiah trailed off and his chin quivered just slightly before he collected himself. He was my boyfriend. And what happened to him? Jeremiah finally lifted his gaze to meet mine. Dark rings circled his eyes and his expression was tight and haunted. He burned. I didn't react to his statement except to make a note on my pad. Can you explain the events leading up to his death? It would take a while. Oh? And why is that? Because it didn't start with Dustin. What didn't start? Jeremiah placed his hands, closed into white fists, upon the table and rested his head between them. I allowed him to take a moment. Sometimes patients such as Jeremiah become overwhelmed easily, and it was best to give them a chance to collect their thoughts. I already told people. The cops, other doctors. It's in their reports. He was right, and I'd already read those accounts. But I wasn't there for other people's second-hand retellings. I want to hear it from you. No, you don't. I need you to help me understand what led up to the events on February 8th. I understand that it's a painful subject, but... I loved Dustin. I loved my mom, too. I stayed quiet and just waited for him to continue. 
He tapped his forehead against the table, as if he were trying to knock his thoughts loose. I monitored him closely, ready to jump up and intervene should he start to cause himself harm. But he remained gentle and controlled, so I allowed it as a coping mechanism. You know about my mom. What about her? That she's dead, too. I'm sorry to hear that. You know how she died. I did, but I wanted him to tell me. How? Fell down the stairs, broke her neck. That's what her death certificate says. You don't sound like you believe that. He continued to tap his forehead against the table. What do you think happened? Jeremiah sat up and pressed his fists into his eyes. His cheeks were wet with tears. What was? I waited, my pen poised. He took a deep, shaky breath. There was a book we used to read when I was little. I don't know its real name, but we called it Sometimes Even Mamas Make Mistakes. It was about a kid whose mom was wrong about the little stuff sometimes, like whether they had cream cheese in the fridge. So maybe she was wrong about monsters being real. I made her read it every night, until I memorized it. And the book has something to do with your mom and Dustin? Kind of. I don't really know. Maybe it led to Waddles. All I know is it started showing up after we'd been reading it for a while. I'm sorry, but what is Waddles? He sighed again and started over. Jeremiah's dad had left him and his mom when he was six. The two of them had had to move into a tiny one-bedroom apartment in the heart of downtown. It was a dirty, dangerous area, and Jeremiah hadn't been allowed outside much. To make him feel less closed in and depressed, his mom had started reading to him. It was one of the only things that brought him joy. He would beg her to bring home new books from the library two or three times a week until she brought him sometimes even mamas make mistakes. From the very first read-through, he was hooked. He loved the story and the illustrations and only wanted that book. Every night after they finished reading it yet again and his mom tucked him in, he'd ask the same question. There aren't any monsters here, are there, mama? She'd kiss him in the middle of his forehead with a laugh and assure him there were not. This went on for a month or so until the voice started. His mom had just shut out the light and closed his door. Jeremiah was beginning to fall asleep. He was used to the sounds of the city by then. Cars going by, stray animals yowling and howling from alleys. And the voices, people talking on the sidewalks far below his window. At first, he thought that's what it was. The distant sound of someone talking outside the apartment building. But, little by little, it was getting louder, and he realized it was just whispering the same phrase over and over again. Sometimes even mamas make mistakes. He sat up in bed, his sheets hugged to his chest, and he looked around his small room. In the corner behind his door, where the light coming in through his window didn't quite reach, 
was an unfamiliar shadow. It was short and wide, as if very fat. When Jeremiah looked at it, it twitched slightly and spoke in a burbly hiss. Sometimes even mamas make mistakes. He gasped, and the thing in the corner started to scuttle toward him in a jerky, quick waddle. Jeremiah threw his comforter over his head and screamed until his mom came running. The light came on, she gathered him up, and the monster was gone. He tried to tell her what he'd seen, but she said it was just a bad dream. There's nothing there, Jerbear. Monsters aren't real. She stayed with him until he was just about asleep and then left to return to the pull-out couch she called her bed. At his request, she left his door open. As soon as he was alone again, the voice returned, this time from under his bed. Sometimes even mamas make mistakes. He launched himself as far from his bed as he could and ran to his mom's room, where he spent the next few nights. She stopped reading his favorite book to him. His mom finally coaxed him into returning to his room by filling the underside of his bed with books and toys. No room for any old monsters under there. But after he'd been tucked in and left alone, Jeremiah heard it again. Sometimes even mamas make mistakes. He insisted his mom sleep with him for the rest of the night. She wasn't thrilled with the idea, but cuddled up next to him. You know what might help? Giving this bad dream a silly name. Then it won't be so scary. They'd tossed ideas around until they came to settle on Waddles due to how it had moved. Jeremiah now believed giving it a name had been a terrible idea. It's like we'd fed into it, made it more powerful. As soon as it had a name, things got worse. His mom still insisted Waddles was just the product of a nightmare. But Jeremiah was certain it was real. He'd see it, lurking out of the corner of his eyes, always a fat, dark shape in the shadows. If he listened close, he could hear its reedy, whistling breath while it watched him. He tried pointing it out to his mother, but she said nothing was there. Whenever she'd leave the room, Jeremiah heard it. The neighbor's cat, Columbo, disappeared first. Jeremiah had finally got on the half-feral feline's good side after bringing it treats every day on his way in and out of the building. Columbo had trusted him enough to eat right out of his hand. But the last time he tried to feed the cat, it backed away, hissing. Jeremiah followed, his hand outstretched, and Columbo had swiped at him. His long claws caught Jeremiah's forearm and left a trail of bloody streaks in his wake. Jeremiah shrieked and Columbo ran off. Behind him, from an unlit corner of the hallway beneath a broken bulb, Waddles burbled with cold laughter. Missing posters went up a few days later, calling for Columbo's return. His owners went door to door asking if people had seen their pet. Jeremiah's mom was not happy when they showed up. She told them that their cat had scratched Jeremiah and was dangerous. They got into a shouting match until his mom slammed the door in their faces. 
The smell led to Colombo's discovery about a week later. He'd been hung by an extension cord in the janitor's closet just down the hall from Jeremiah's apartment. His owners came back to their door with a vengeance. They accused Jeremiah of murdering their cat. He'd been the last one seen with Columbo, and they said he probably wanted to hurt the cat for scratching him. His mother said they were crazy. Jeremiah was only a little kid who loved animals. He'd never hurt Columbo. They then suggested she'd done it herself as payback for the scratch. Again, his mom slammed the door in their face. Jeremiah insisted it was Waddles. Her temper was still flaring and she snapped that Waddles wasn't real and stomped to the bathroom. Jeremiah slapped his hands over his ears when he heard the satisfied hiss coming from over his shoulder. Sometimes even mamas make mistakes. No matter how he tried to insist Waddles was real, his mom wouldn't hear it. It's not, Jer Bear. It's just a dream. But the more she denied it, the more active Waddles became. Accidents started happening around the apartment. Toys Jeremiah hadn't played with were left out for her to trip on. The gas stove was left on while they were gone for the day. The plant pot they kept on the windowsill fell on the street, almost hitting a passerby. And every night, Waddles would remain beneath Jeremiah's bed, gleefully mumbling its phrase. He woke one morning after another restless sleep to his mother screaming. He ran from his room and found her standing in the kitchen, staring down at the floor. He said he called to her, but she didn't turn, and he crept closer until he could see what she was looking at. Insects, cockroaches and flies and spiders were laid out across the floor. They were each missing appendages. Beside them rested a pair of headless rats tied together by their tails. Their blood had stained the floor a deep red. What is this, Jeremiah? He didn't have an answer, except the one she didn't want to hear. She yelled at him to go to his room while she cleaned up the mess. She'd have a serious talk with him when she was done, she'd warned. He could hear her crying quietly over the rustle of the plastic garbage bag, and then the front door opening and closing. In the silence that followed, he whimpered and buried his head under his pillow, but it didn't stop him from hearing the voice. Sometimes even mamas make mistakes. Waddles, too, went quiet after that. He waited for his mom to come back. And he waited. And waited. It took a long time for his grandparents to come collect him. They said there'd been an accident. His mom had tripped going down the stairs and been hurt. He was going to live with them now. The last time he saw his mom was in a casket wearing a high-necked dress. As his family shuffled around the funeral home, offering their condolences to one another, Jeremiah sat in the back, where he cried while a hissing, burbling breath brushed the back of his neck. I decided I'd never tell anyone else about Waddles. He'd become even paler 
a feat I didn't think possible, and he raked his nails up and down his arm while he rocked in his chair. It was still there, always, always just behind me. But I didn't tell. No, I, I didn't. Not a word. I couldn't. Mom hadn't believed me, and it, I don't know, made it more real somehow. If I didn't tell them, no one could deny it, and I couldn't hurt anyone. I let them think I was crazy. I let them think I did bad stuff. Your record shows you've been in and out of prison. Yeah. A lot of drug-related charges. I wanted it to stop, to leave me alone. The drugs helped me sleep. Did you see any doctors about it? No. I didn't want to tell. I didn't want to give it a chance. But you're telling people now. It doesn't matter anymore. Tears had appeared in his eyes, and he let his head hang. It's not going away. It never will. What made things change? Dustin. I met him at a halfway house. It was a court-ordered thing. He was a volunteer. He, he took care of me. He was the nicest person I ever met. The pain that twisted his face was deep and raw. What happened to Dustin, Jeremiah? He swallowed hard. We started seeing each other outside of the halfway house. He took me places, doctors and stuff, but then to dinners and movies, and date stuff. It was nice. He paused, the ghost of a smile pulling at the corners of his mouth. I was staying on my meds, he made sure of it, but Waddles doesn't care what I'm taking. It came everywhere with us, always just off to the side, fat and mumbling and following. His rocking was becoming more rapid as he spoke. When I got out of the halfway house, Dustin invited me to stay at his place. It was an apartment, real nice. I thought maybe I could be happy there. Dustin made me happy. Maybe Waddles would go away if I was happy. It had shown up when I was sad, so maybe happiness would drive it away. Did it? No, it made it angry, I think. It was getting louder every night. I couldn't make out what it was saying, just that it was mumbling and breathing. It started breaking things, glasses and stuff. It poured bleach into Dustin's fish tank, killed all the fish. Dustin got frustrated, he thought it was me. I didn't want to tell him about Waddles, but I didn't want him to leave me either. I begged him to forgive me. He took me to new doctors, I got new meds, but Waddles just kept messing things up. There were more dead things, bugs and stuff. They were in food and Dustin's clothes. He was getting madder and madder. He finally snapped when his dog... Jeremiah choked on a sob and tilted his head back to stare at the ceiling. Gypsy was a little thing, a chihuahua mutt or something. I'd been taking a nap. The meds made me tired. Dustin woke me up. He was crying and screaming about what I'd done to Gypsy. I don't know what he meant until he dragged me out of bed and brought me to the bathroom. Gypsy was... She was in the toilet. She'd been drowned. Dustin thought I did it, but I didn't. I didn't. I wouldn't. I loved Gypsy. What happened next? 
He was throwing all my things into a bag and yelling at me to go. So I told him, I told him I didn't want to, but I was going to lose him. I told him about Waddles and what had happened to Columbo and my mom. I told him and... Did he believe you? No. No, of course not. And every time I tried to explain again, he just say Waddles wasn't real even louder. He just screamed it at me. He said I was sick and needed help, and he couldn't give it to me. Waddles wasn't real. Waddles was me, but it's not me. I tried to tell him. I tried. He wouldn't believe me. I, I locked myself in the bedroom so he couldn't throw me out. I had to make him believe me. He trailed off for a moment, his throat bobbing with poorly contained emotion. He was swearing a lot. Dustin didn't swear. He stomped around for a while. I heard him. I heard Waddles, too. I begged Dustin to listen, but he told me to shut up. It went on for hours, and then it got quiet. I guess he fell asleep on the couch. I don't know. He just got quiet. Waddles, too. And then? Then Dustin was screaming, but not angry like before. Like hurting. I ran out to see what was going on, and there was already so much smoke. It stank so bad. And Dustin was running around, he was screaming, and there was fire, and it was all over him. And I couldn't put it out, I couldn't put it, I couldn't put it out. I let him cry for a while. He hugged himself while he rocked (laughs) sharply back and forth. I'd seen the photos of the unfortunate Dustin. It had been a terrible, painful way to die. It had been so long since I told anyone. You must have been waiting. Just waiting. You wanted to hurt Dustin. It likes hurting people. And it will. Again, I know it will. And it can't be stopped. I know that now. I gotta tell people. I have to make them believe. The more who believe, the weaker Waddles will be. Then it'll go away. It has to. It has to. All right, all right. I didn't need anything more from him that day. I packed up my belongings, wished him well, and prepared to go. He watched me with a sunken, dark expression. Outside, I met with his primary doctor, Judy Ashandy. She smiled sadly. Awful, huh? He hasn't changed his story once. I've heard it at least a dozen times. Do you believe him? That he's being stalked by an obese poltergeist? No. But I do believe he's not aware of what he's doing when he's acting as Waddles. Dissociative identity disorder? Maybe. It's rare, I know. But I haven't ruled it out yet. I thanked her for her time and scheduled a follow-up appointment for the next week to continue my observation of Jeremiah. Two days before I was scheduled to meet with him, I received a call from the facility. In reserved tones, I was told there had been an incident between Dr. Ashandi and Jeremiah. They suggested I come down right away. I arrived less than an hour later to find Dr. Ashandi's body being wheeled out on a gurney. What happened? A nurse motioned for me to follow her. She explained on the way. 
Dr. Ashanbi had just finished a therapy session with Jeremiah. She'd put in a call for an orderly to come escort him back to his room. Jeremiah hadn't been violent at all since his admission, so we'd been giving him a bit more freedom. She stopped and pushed open the door to Dr. Ashandi's office. Dark drops were splattered across her bookshelves and floor. Papers were strewn about. Chairs overturned. I put a hand over my mouth. Where is Jeremiah now? The nurse told me he was sedated in solitary. He wouldn't be able to talk for a while, but she could call me when he was awake. I hurried out, eager to be away from the grisly scene, and had to steady myself in the elevator on my way back down the parking garage. The idea that Jeremiah could have killed Dr. Ashandi in such a brutal manner seemed so contrary to the man I'd met. He'd seemed so genuine and heartbroken. I was thinking of how I'd need to re-examine my interview as I approached my car. I rounded to the driver's side and was so distracted I didn't notice it at first. Not until I was reaching for my handle. The message scrawled across the doors in dripping red. Sometimes even doctors make mistakes. A nice, relaxing trip on the ocean is just what the doctor ordered. Sun, sea, the wind in your sails, oh, just bliss. But it's slightly less enjoyable when your ocean dream becomes a nautical nightmare thanks to some sinister marine weeds. But in this tale, shared with us by author Eric Ian Steele, we discover that even toxic algae isn't the worst thing you might find yourself drifting into. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Jesse Cornett, and Aaron Lillis. So hoist up the sail, but there'll be no going home from this ocean nightmare. It's not safe to go back into the water, even if the seas look becalmed. If you hear this, maybe you can explain what happened. I've given up trying. All I know is that it took place exactly the way I'm about to tell it. I can imagine what the papers will say when they get a hold of this. The sordid little lies they'll tell to try to make it into a story worth printing. So I'm sharing it to set the record straight. I don't want anybody coming to the wrong conclusions after I'm gone. That would just about kill my mom. Why did it happen to us? To folks like Skip and Francine? I don't know. I guess the truth is that bad things happen to good people. It's the way of the cosmos. Sometimes I think the elements just conspire against us. We can look back and think that such and such disaster was caused when I did this or that. 
but that's wishful thinking. We never get to see the signs before calamities happen. Things just are. Life is like the ocean. It only looks calm on the surface. Actually, it's unfathomable. Before you know it, whatever's lurking underneath will sneak up and capsize you. But I should start at the beginning. When did it start? Looking back, I'm not so sure. Was it when we first put out to sea? I didn't notice anything different. If there was something in the air, some ominous cloud with an odd green tinge to it, a funny taste to the water, some omen of impending doom, I never saw it. As far as I can remember, it was just an ordinary day. Me and Skip, God, how I miss him already, had decided we should take the boat down to the Keys. Actually, Skip didn't want to go at all. It was me. I pestered him until he agreed to take us. Maybe it was my fault for doing that, for badgering him into leaving his sunny home. But we'd gone out to sea plenty of other times in years past. Why would this time be any different? I was only down in Florida for three weeks after graduation. As a physics major, the natural career path was to go into research, but I'd had a belly full of lecture halls and dusty professors. So I hung around at home, drank too much, watched late-night movies, slept for most of the day, and generally procrastinated. I knew I'd eventually run out of money and would have to take some crappy job coding for a bank or some such organization. But I had the rest of the summer before that happened, so I flew down to Miami and met Skip. It was my stay of execution, one final fling before a life of dull servitude. Skip and his wife Francine had a place right on the beach in Fort Lauderdale. White sand, blue sea, pelicans, the works. I'd been there for about a week before I got itchy feet from all that beachcombing and thought it would be a great idea to sail even further south, maybe as far as Key West. I'm trying not to think too much now about how much I pressured Skip. He'd been a chef at the local Red Lobster for as long as I can remember, and I'm sure he was looking forward to just kicking back that weekend. But I pushed. Skip, how often do I come down here and visit you? Never. Well, there you go. Don't be so lazy. After all I've done for you? Of course, it was a joke. Skip and his wife did everything for me. I did nothing for them except use up their hospitality. God. The fear is more or less continuous, like a shark eating away at my stomach lining. I feel cold all the time and there's this mist the weather forecast for that Friday said clear skies we drove out after breakfasting at one of Skip's haunts, a local place no chains for him working in one was enough Francine came with us she was great for her age slim from all that power walking tan, long blonde hair that smelled of salt water I really liked her in a hot ant kind of way. Skip and she had been a constant presence in mine and my mom's lives since the cancer took dad back in 06. The pair of them had been in Desert Storm. 
Mainly we kept in touch by computer, owing to the distance between us. Skip had been a rock for my mom, staying as long as he could before work and Francine called him back. He thought my dad had picked something up in the desert through all those injections, but we could never prove anything. I don't know why I'm sharing all of this with you. Maybe I'm trying to find a root cause to blame. Or maybe it's just a way of organizing my thoughts. I don't really think anyone will hear this broadcast. But I really need something to distract me right now from looking at the expanse of sea. Maybe it's my last will and testament. Anyhow, Skip's boat was at the marina on Golden Beach, a white ribbon of sand draped alongside the denim blue Atlantic. The pier was a roped-together collection of sun-bleached creaking timbers washed over by waddling pelicans. The plan was to sail to Key Largo and put ashore for the night before spending the next day exploring as far as Isla Morada and then sailing back for nightfall. Skip's boat was a gorgeous 30-footer called the Pequod. Sorry about the lack of ominous-sounding name foreshadowing what was to come. White sails cozy if somewhat antiquated cabin. It even had a short-range fish detector. I loved it. We set out. It was a beautiful day. The sky a flawless eggshell blue. Sea an undulating tarpaulin of gray tinged with aquamarine. The thermometer nudged 90. Pelicans wheeled overhead, too lazy even to dive for fish. Skip pointed her south and kicked back in his captain's chair while Francine dished out chilled beers. Salt air swept into the sails. Water churned behind us and we were away. Francine slipped into a bikini top and a long airy skirt now that we were away from land, giving us both a good view of her smooth brown legs. Skip's mahogany face creased into a smile, and he struck up a tune on his harmonica. He's called Skip for a reason. Nobody likes sailing more than him. We passed Miami and could just make out the painted hotels of South Beach watching us like tall pastel ghosts. Then the shoreline shrank into the distance, and we were alone, bobbing up and down in that wide open expanse of blue. The first time we encountered anything, we were a mile or two south of Key Biscayne, far enough out now so we couldn't see land. What? What the hell? Something bumped the boat. Francine glanced over the bows and exclaimed with delight. It was a sea turtle, a big old green thing flopping about in the wake. It kept banging into our hole repeatedly. Maybe he's lost. Hey, what's up, old fella? You want a snack? <laughs> Ain't got no turtle food. The poor beast kept swimming into the boat, unable or unwilling to skirt around it. I thought it looked panicked. Without warning, a massive head erupted through the surface and clamped down on the hapless reptile black eyes reflected sunlight. Then it was gone, leaving only a fizzing swath of water. From the size of it, I was pretty sure it was a thresher or a bull. I told Skip, standing as far away as I could from the edge of the boat. 
Maybe you're right. Better keep out of the water. I don't need no great whites out here. And bull sharks kill more folks than pointers and tigers all together. Will we be all right? It looked pretty big. Everything looks bigger in the ocean. He was probably a six-footer. That'd take a whole lot more to capsize a boat this big. We'll be all right. Maybe we'd best set sail, though. Get out of his feeding ground. He winked at me with a smirk. We bobbed about for a few minutes while Skip trimmed the sail. During that time, I felt more insignificant than I'd ever done in my life. Every wave felt like it had the potential to capsize us. But it never happened. Hey, mind if I put on the fish finder? At least it would give us warning next time so my heart wouldn't leap up into my throat like that. Skip nodded. Watch the battery, though. I didn't have time to charge it up. I flicked on the device. The steady blip-blip was comforting. It was too still out here. Too silent. It was past high noon now. The sun a blazing ball of sodium in the heavens. I could feel my skin crisping under its gaze. The sea glistened, dazzling with brightness. Dark clouds brooded on the horizon, but too far away to pose a threat. What is it? Skip? Something big. Another shark? I, I don't think so. At that moment, something burst through the water beside us. Francine and I jumped. Another plop as something else broke the surface on the other side. Skip chuckled to himself. <laughs> we sat on the stern, sipping a beer keeping one burly forearm on the jib. A silver-gray fish with elongated fins landed on the deck and flapped about a bit before Skip tossed it back into the ocean. More followed, skipping through the air just above the water. We watched the shining bodies fly through a rainbow mist on their way to God knows where. <laughs> yeah, flying fish. Watch out, they don't swallow you whole. <laughs> For the rest of the afternoon, nothing happened. The sun baked the heavens. A cool breeze whipped the sails. The clouds kept their distance. Francine reclined on the bows, enjoying the wind in her hair, confident in her own body as only a mature woman can be. If I gazed too long, Skip didn't complain. I think he enjoyed knowing his wife could still bring an admiring glint to the eyes of a young pup like me. For the next two hours, we had as pleasant a time as you could imagine. Around four o'clock, Francine gave a gasp. <gasps> uh, what is that? We peered over the bows. A thick orange scum covered the water, weeds and flotsam caught in its sickly pool. 
I'd never smelled anything so bad. In the heat, it was suffocating. Francine pointed at something and cried out. Amid the putrid mass floated a large black object that had once been a pelican. Slime coated its flippers, head, and wings. Its feeble wings flapped in vain against the pool of the tarry scum. We watched as it sank below the surface without a sound. I pulled back, unwilling to go anywhere near that polluted gunk. Skip remained inscrutable and tossed his beer can over the side. Yeah, some kind of algae, I guess. It happens sometimes. The disturbances on the seabed will open up a crack or a fissure, sends up a bubble of gas. Sometimes it's so toxic it kills everything for miles. It brings all kinds of things up to the surface. Stuff that's been dead a thousand years. Get us out of here. Skip nodded. I think that, like us, he wanted to be out of that damn tide. He grabbed the jib with the intention of spinning the boat around and catching the wind. That was when the breeze died. What's up? A heavy, humid heat descended. The sun reflected off the waves, bouncing heat rays back up at us. Why aren't we moving? He pointed to the mainsail, which hung like a limp blanket. The headsail was rigid, but only due to the tension in the lines. Sailboats need wind. We ain't got any. Well, when will we get some? Then we'll rule the seas. It could be a minute. It could be an hour. Just have to wait and see. What about the motor? <laughs> Skip just laughed. Uh, he kicked the stern with his foot. Now we got a motor, all right. But we don't need it. This'll pick up after a minute or two. Don't want to use gas unless we have to. Stuff's more expensive than crude oil. I sat down, not having anything else to do and wished I had brought a book. Having spent the last three years plowing through volumes of literature in college, I was having a reaction against reading anything. Now, for the first time since then, I missed the printed page. We waited an hour. Two. The light began to fade in the east. All right. Engine it is. He pushed the ignition button on the outboard. Nothing happened. What is it? Snagged in the weeds. Dang it. Can't we clean them off? I ain't going in there. I told you that stuff can be poison. Acid, even. You'll strip your skin right off. Seen it happen. He tried to hide it from us, but I could see concern on his worn features. Why don't we use the radio? I ain't no baby waiting to be picked up by the Coast Guard. Skip, do as he says. Skip hesitated, then thought better of answering her back and complied. He headed into the cab. 
A moment later, he reemerged, looking paler. Son of a bitch. Damn fish finders drained the battery. Hey, try your phone, Bobby. I nodded, pulled out my cell. No bars. Franny? I forgot it. You were pestering me so much. I thought you were going to get that fixed. I felt a hollow open up in the pit of my stomach. Part of me felt angry at Skip's negligence, but I had badgered Skip to come out here. I clamped my teeth together in a vice. Can't we paddle or something? With what? You want to put your hands in that? <laughs> Francine drew back into the middle of the boat, hugging herself. Besides, we're so far out, wouldn't make any difference. Currents against us. Well, do something! Like what? Make wind? Talk sense, Fran! Skip rose out of his seat. His unsightly belly gave him the appearance of a bloated turtle. It was the first time I'd ever seen them argue, or even raise their voices to one another. Skip caught my eye, sucked in his ire, and sat down. And we'll have to wait is all. And we're in a shipping lane for lord's sake. Now this won't last long. Just be patient. So, we waited. Another hour went past. Still, no wind. Skip's face grew dark behind the cloud of unwashed stubble that covered his cheeks. I forced myself to stay calm. Somebody would find us. We weren't that far out. I kept praying for the wind to rise. How could things go so wrong so fast? Two more hours passed. The sun sank across the prow. Francine abandoned her bikini for a waterproof jacket. She sat on the prow, staring into the muck. I felt like a character out of a Coleridge poem, except nobody had shot an albatross. This can't go on forever, right? Skip nodded out to sea. I followed his gaze and to my dismay saw those black clouds massing all along the horizon. My physics degree kicked in. How is that possible? We're not moving, but there must be a wind. He shook his head. The sun had cooled now, though the thermometer still kept a vigil around 90. Broken after all. The shadows of the mast stretched across the boat. Something bumped us. Probably just another fish. But then we felt it again. The boat shifted a little. We all grew rigid. Whatever it was sounded big. Look, keep your heads. Whatever it is, it can't climb on board, so just keep calm, and it'll go away. Mast shook. It sounded less like the body of a solid creature, more like something slithering under the vessel. We sat there listening, but whatever had prodded us went away. Skip leaned close and whispered to me. 
There's a flare in that box over there, near the mast, if anything happens. I nodded, more terrified by what I saw in Skip's flinty eyes than whatever occasion might justify the flare gun's use. By now the sun had fused into the horizon where hungry clouds were devouring it. Pretty soon it would be dark. Still, nothing moved. The Thunderheads appeared content to stay where they were. The heat had started to cool off rapidly after five o'clock. Now we were shivering. Francine's coat didn't appear to be doing her much good. Skip lit a few lanterns around the boat. I didn't like to think of them as fishing lures, but that's what they looked like. Can't stay like this much longer. And by morning, we'll be fine. Someone will pick us up. Sure his eggs is eggs. I winced at the metaphor. My stomach rumbled for lack of food. But somehow, I managed to get to sleep that night. cry awoke me. It was black everywhere except for Skip's lights. Francine was leaning over the side, shouting. She looked like she was about to go over. I dragged her back. What happened? They took him! They took Skip! I held onto her with all my strength. What took him? What happened? The cab was empty, and there was nowhere else for him to hide. Obviously, Skip had gone overboard. I peered over the side. The orange bloom was still there. No trace of Skip, only a temporary disturbance in the swirling waters. Skip was a strong swimmer. He should have come up for air at least once, but there was nothing. No sound. No bubbles. Francine huddled against the mast, shaking. I grabbed her, but she drew away with a terrified cry. I stroked her hair, trying to coax some sense out of her. But she could only stare at the water. Eventually, I let her go. She sat rocking on her heels. I tried the motor again, but Skip was right. It was hopelessly clogged by weeds, and there was no way I was ever putting my hand down near there. I went to the rusty box Skip had pointed out earlier and opened it. Inside lay a flare pistol, a flashlight, and a first aid kit. I grabbed the gun and shone the flashlight over the side, scanning the lifeless waves and saw nothing. Absolutely nothing. I gave up and collapsed on the floor of the boat. Skip was gone. I must have dozed off again because I woke up with the sun scorching my face and sea salt stinging my arms. I gazed around, hoping last night's events were a nightmare. There was still no skip. Francine was hugging the mast, a glazed expression on her sunburned face. 
I tried again to ask her what had happened, but she didn't speak, didn't even look at me. The morning passed slowly. The boat listed, its mast pointing toward the sun. No wind rustled the sails. The distant clouds we had spotted yesterday remained just that, distant. My throat was dry from the sea breeze and lack of water. I drank tepid liquid out of the ice pack in the hamper and sipped a can of beer. I had read that alcohol dehydrates you, but better that than nothing. Water, water, everywhere. Something bobbed by in the orange murk. I saw with revulsion that it was a turtle shell, minus its owner. Just tiny specks of meat on the inside. Normally birds would have come and pecked it clean, but I hadn't seen a bird all day. Maybe they knew better than to come near. Some innate sense told them to stay away. I offered the beer to Francine, but she stared like an idiot. She seemed to have retreated to some place in her mind, but I was wrong about that, because all of a sudden, her mouth grew rounder, and she started to shake violently. She reached out with a long, varnished nail, trying to speak. All that came out was a hoarse moan, maybe from lack of water, or maybe... It was pure fear. And then I heard it. Skip's harmonica. I feared to turn my head, but I had to look. Had to see what Francine saw. Something had risen up out of the orange filth buoyed to the surface, no doubt by internal gases created by bacteria during decomposition. The body was Skip, what was left of him. His stomach was gone, revealing a broken hole of rib cage. Gray bones and lines of yellow gristle showed through liver-colored muscle. Most of his flesh was missing. Only mud-stained scraps of his shirt and underpants remained. One side of his face was gone as well. A single eye sagged in its socket. I could see white teeth attached to the jawbone. The harmonica hung from a chain around his neck. A gust of wind had blown upon it, sounding that awful spirit tune. Now, it disappeared below the brine with a gurgle. Something was moving around him, slick and oily. It seemed to tangle itself in knots, then untangle itself. That was when my stomach lurched, and I realized that this was not just one thing. It was many. The things that swirled in and out of Skip's ribcage were eels. At least, I thought they were eels at first. They were more like huge worms with flexible antennae. Barbells. That's what they're called. Not antenna. And those aren't eels. They're hagfish. They live at the bottom of the sea and feed on rotting carcasses. I watched as they writhed all over him, and in and out of him. Covered in slime, they constantly twisted themselves in knots. 
After a while, I could see how they worked. Their horned heads wiggled into the flesh, pulling away chunks with that nodding motion. The water around him was covered with flakes of flesh, as more hagfish swam up from the depths to partake of the feast. There must have been hundreds of them. I staggered back from the prow, hoping to God they couldn't climb up onto the boat. Skip had been right after all. Whatever had caused the slime had dredged up these monstrous prehistoric bottom feeders along with it. I started to wonder how he had fallen in. Had he gotten tired, slipped, or had the hagfish somehow pulled him under? Francine gurgled with fear, and I remembered her need for support more than my own frightened instinct for self-preservation. I peeled her away from the awful sight, hiding her face in my chest. The hagfish were silent, but I could hear the occasional sound of a piece of Skip's flesh ripping away and splashing in the water. The grim spectacle continued for most of that day. Not a breath of air stirred. The sails hung like a pair of old man's lungs, no longer proud, just wasted and thin, like ghostly sheets for a pall. The timbers beneath us creaked in a soft lullaby, and all around us that thick, gluey orange tar, and the subtle sounds of the hagfish eating. Once, I looked back over the side of the boat to see him bobbing there. His jawbone was working up and down as a snake-like body squirmed behind it. I could imagine him speaking to me. Don't think you're going anywhere. I know you like my wife. You're both gonna join me down here real soon. Real soon. The hagfish flopped into the water, taking the jawbone along with it, and Skip spoke no more. About midday, I started to feel lightheaded. I realized Francine must be feeling the same, so I took the last remaining beer can, pressed it to Francine's lips first, aching to get a taste myself but knowing she would be weaker. She drank without speaking, without even looking at me. The fire of intelligence was gone from her eyes. She coughed up most of the beer and vomited the rest upon the floor. The acrid stench stung my nostrils. Most of the puke was her own gastric juices because she'd had nothing to eat. Bad move. That'll dehydrate you even more. I drank the remainder of the beer. Far from clearing my head, I felt more woozy. Without food in my stomach, the alcohol raced to my brain. I leaned back on the boards, feeling my shoulder blades burn on the scalding deck. I closed my eyes and could still see red veins pulsating behind my eyelids. Before I knew it, I was asleep again.
I woke to find Francine standing on the prow, staring into the waters. Franny? Do you hear it? It's Skip. He's calling me. I followed her gaze. Skip's body was little more than a skeleton now. Even the hagfish had departed his ruined frame. They skirted the boat, eager, searching things, writhing and nodding themselves in a vast, thrashing curtain all around us. Francine trembled under my touch as I tried to draw her away. Skip's gone. He's gone. Come back to the mast. She remained motionless, a rod of iron. Try as I might, I couldn't move her. I glared up at the sun's white-hot eye as it gave us a baleful glare from the heavens. I had to do something. I staggered back to the mast, opened the metal box, and took out the flare pistol. It seemed to be simple enough to operate, only a single cylinder, but otherwise like a revolver. I resolved to shoot it and see what happened. Surely we couldn't have drifted up that far. But then I checked myself. Looking landwards, the shoreline was gone. Skip had been the only one with a compass. And we could be anywhere. Still, it was worth a try. Before I could do anything, Francine stepped off the boat. No! No! My brain couldn't think of anything else to say. In slow motion, I saw her feet leave the prow, her body drop beside the boat. I raced to the prow. The ocean thrashed as the hagfish knotted themselves in a frenzy, their slimy bodies performing obscene contortions. The bubbling foam turned red. I saw a lock of Francine's hair sink below the waves. Many of the hagfish disappeared, going down to feed. Others remained where they were, looping themselves with excitement, blind, grotesque heads rearing their probing antenna to the surface. I could see their hideous jaws. Not really jaws at all, more like the serrated edges of an angle grinder. I drew back from the awful sight, hearing them slither against the side of the hull. Francine hadn't made a sound. Now, there would be two of them out there. Two grinning skeletons mocking me, begging me to join them. I prayed then, prayed to the god I had hardly spared a thought for since Sunday school. It seemed that any hope was better than facing reality and going insane. Maybe I did go insane at that moment. I think anyone would have. It's been a whole day since Francine disappeared. Mercifully, she hasn't risen to the surface. Sometimes, I hear tapping under the hull, and I think it's her asking me to go for a swim. As for Skip... He just lurks there, a few yards from his beloved boat, looking like a shipwreck himself now. 
His tattered shirt rustles in the occasional slight breeze that rises only to taunt me. Far too weak to lift our sails. I never asked for this. Maybe we should have shot the flare gun off sooner. Maybe Skip should have checked his battery, or maybe I should have turned the damn fish finder off. But I never shot an albatross. I just wanted to take a ride with my friends. I'm not to blame. It was a freak current or an underwater geyser. It's those things' fault. Those horrible, hellish things that look like nothing God would have ever created. They slither in their gluey slime and they slide. I don't intend on going out like Skip and Francine. I still have the flare gun. It's a hell of a way to go, but it's better than being caught by those things. If I can wait until enough of them are on the boat, I can burn them all back to hell. This deck is dry as a bone. It'll burn like tinder. An hour ago, I found an empty water bottle in Francine's bag along with her cell phone. She had it with her all the time. At first, I laughed hard, but then I tried it. The battery is dead. She must have realized or she would have told us. She hadn't charged her battery before the trip. That was her mistake. The sound of their splashing about has increased in the past few hours. I think they're trying to clamber aboard. Perhaps, with their primitive senses, they can smell me. They're coming now, clambering up the side of the boat. I can see the odd antenna above the prow, glistening with fathoms deep slime. I'm broadcasting this over the shortwave so somebody will know what happened. I don't even know if it's transmitting. But these things have to be stopped. They have to... I've got a new plan. If you hear this broadcast, come look for me. I'll jump over the side as the boat burns and distracts them. I'm a fast swimmer. Maybe I can make it. I'm going to swim with the sun on my left. Or is it my right? Look out for me. I'll be swimming. They're coming over the side. It's always nice to find a surprise treasure just lying about your house. There's no reason to ask where it came from or wonder how it got there. It's precious, it's glittery, and it's yours. In this tale, shared with us by author Jacef Wisner, we find out that such unexpected discoveries can be very sinister indeed. Performing this tale are Addison Peacock and Nicole Goodnight. So let's join Rebecca as she takes ownership of her strange find and learn of the things she's being encouraged to do. Perhaps it will be safe to do just one.
She wasn't sure where it came from. She got home from work one day, and it was just there. She wouldn't call it a medallion, because nobody uses that word in 2019, but it wasn't a typical necklace either. It was about as wide as two quarters, and the embossing on the face aided that comparison. It was hard to make out the exact symbol. Snakes? Some sort of animal? It had faded over the countless years of its existence. Still, something was there. Something not quite natural. She finally called me late one night a couple of weeks after finding the thing and told me the whole story. Rebecca got home late that day, something not entirely unusual for her right in the middle of tax season. One of her favorite sayings was, an accountant's work is never done, but it's always seemed like one of those bullshit things you say when you have nothing else to say. And she didn't even notice it at first. It wasn't until she sat down to eat her dinner that she saw it, right next to a stack of files she had been working on the night before. She couldn't remember seeing it earlier, but Rebecca would admittedly become less observant after a long day at work, so she assumed it had just fallen out of a folder. Why she thought a necklace would have been with all of that, I'll never know. When she finally noticed it, she stared at it for a few long minutes taking in just exactly what she was seeing. It was beautiful, but in its own unique and unnatural way. To the untrained eye, it could have easily been mistaken as dull or uninteresting, but Rebecca knew better than that. Somehow she could tell that this necklace, this charm, was something else entirely. She absorbed the sight of the thing for what seemed like forever before finally delicately, reaching out to touch it. Whatever it was, wherever it came from, it was clear to her that something special was about to happen. Slowly and deliberately, her fingers got closer and closer until they were right on top of it. She put her skin to the necklace and nothing, nothing happened. There was no surge of power, no feeling of dread, just nothing. She didn't know what she had expected, but that necklace, no matter how it got there, was just another inconsequential moment in her life. In her hands, the detail on the necklace felt even more lost to time than it appeared from a distance. Still, though, she could make out that the symbol on its face was, in fact, an animal. What she thought was snakes from further away turned out to be legs and a tail attached to a larger body. It looked vaguely like a dog, but she couldn't be sure of exactly what she was looking at. She looked the necklace over for another few minutes before shrugging it off and putting it back with the folders on her table. It was already pretty late, so she decided to look into it more later. The next morning, Rebecca took all of the files back to the office to finish up her work. To keep from having the necklace fall out of a folder again, she chose to wear it around her neck. It was pretty, in its own way, and the faded color of it happened to match the pale dress she was wearing. That dress had earned her a lot of compliments that day, too. At least she was more aware of them than usual. She told me that she had worn that dress plenty of times before, and honestly, it was a bit plain, so the attention was a bit unusual. Maybe it was the necklace. It did match surprisingly well. 
That night, she left the necklace on while she slept. She explained that she just forgot to take it off, but it wasn't entirely believable under the circumstances. When she told me her story later on, she mentioned a strange dream from that night. In the dream, she was woken up during the night by a thud. When she rolled over in bed to check the clock, there was a creature looking down on her. She described it as if a wolf-like being had merged with a man and it was covered in red fur. Its face was similar to a dog, but it wasn't what you might normally think of when you imagine a werewolf, which, to clarify, it absolutely wasn't. Instead of scaring her, though, the creature's presence calmed her. She said that she absorbed the sight for an eternity in the dream before finally smiling and closing her eyes. When she opened them again, it was daytime. Rebecca had similar dreams over the next couple of nights. They became more and more active, though, with her interacting with the creature instead of just staring. She wouldn't tell me anything that they did, just that the extensiveness of the dreams changed. She did say that they felt more and more real as the nights went on, but she would always wake up in the same way as before. The compliments that Rebecca had received after finding the necklace continued on, too. But it wasn't just the attention that had changed about her days. Increasingly, it seemed like things were simply going her way more than ever before. Her boss was so impressed with her recent work that she was given a promotion that put her in charge of a much bigger and much higher profile account. And the barista she'd been flirting with for months actually took the initiative to ask her out. As great as things were going, though, it also happened to be when the voices started. She said it wasn't sudden, and honestly, she didn't realize what was happening at first. Rebecca had always had an extremely active imagination, and most of her life was spent running scenarios and conversations through her head that she knew would never happen. So when the voices started, she assumed it was just more of the same. What made her start to take notice, though, was when the time turned more sinister. It wasn't anything bad, not really. It was more that she began thinking of doing things she never would have done. Trip Mike when he walks by with his coffee. Skip out on paying the check at lunch by pretending to go to the bathroom. Nothing that people don't do every day all over the world, but things that were very unlike Rebecca. The thoughts became increasingly darker, too as if they were leading up to something more. The voices in her head continued for a few days, as did her dream encounters with the creature. It was during one of these nights that she finally brought me in. It was around three in the morning when my phone rang. Scott heard it first and handed it to me as he woke me up. Ash, I didn't want to wake you, but I was afraid I would forget the dream by the time I could call you in the morning. I told her that it was fine, Honestly, just relieved that there wasn't something wrong that called for a 3 a.m. wake-up call. Something physically wrong, at least. Over the phone, Rebecca started telling me about the voices. I admittedly started to get a little worried, but completely awake at this point, I had her start from the beginning. It took nearly an hour for it to all come out, but in the end, she finally got to the reason for the call in the first place. I realized that the voices I've been hearing are the same as what's been coming from that thing in my dreams. 
By this point, it was already close to the time that the sun would rise, so I told Rebecca to just make some coffee and relax, and that I would be over in a few hours after I got a little more sleep. She seemed reassured by that, so I ended the call and went back to the bedroom. I had walked out earlier in the conversation so that I wouldn't keep Scott up after letting him know that everything seemed to be okay. He was leaving on a hunting trip later in the morning. As hard as I tried, though, I just couldn't seem to fall back asleep, my mind racing with thoughts from everything that Rebecca had told me. She had never shown any signs of mental illness that I could see in all the years that I had known her. So the fact that she had started to hear voices in her head while she was awake was disturbing, to say the least. Before I knew it, the sun had come up. So I showered and dressed and headed over to Rebecca's. Her two-story house was small, but it perfectly fit her personality. It was quaint and cute without ever trying to be more than it really was. She answered the door almost immediately after I knocked, and she appeared visibly more distressed than I had expected. Her hair was disheveled as she stood there in her robe, holding a small glass of what certainly wasn't the coffee that I had suggested a few hours before. She gestured for me to come in, and she shut the door behind me as we walked to her living room. You don't believe me, do you? We sat down on her sofa. Her robe moved the slightest bit at the neck as she looked up at me from her glass, and I noticed that she was wearing the necklace. I believe that you've been hearing voices, and that you've been having strange dreams, but I don't know what else you're asking me to believe. There was no way that she had some kind of magic necklace. Thinking so would be completely ridiculous. She shrugged. I don't know what I'm asking either. Things have just gotten weird since I found this thing. She pointed to the necklace. And realizing that I heard the same voice in my dreams freaked me out. We sat there for a while, and I had her tell me the entire story again. Everything was exactly the same as what she told me over the phone, but it wasn't in a rehearsed or scripted way. Rebecca legitimately believed that this necklace she found in a folder from work was the cause of the changes in her life lately. It just didn't make sense to me how this person I had known for most of my adult life would be suddenly showing signs of a spiral. After she finished the story, I asked to see the necklace. I realized that I still hadn't gotten a good look at it other than that brief glimpse earlier. She hesitated a little longer than seemed normal before pulling back the neck of the robe. Sure enough, it was a small faded circle with some sort of dog-like creature on it. Instinctively, I reached out and touched it before she could move away, but I had barely connected with it before she jerked up from the sofa. I want you to go. She seethed at me with more anger than I had ever seen from her. I sat there for a second, confused and trying to figure out how to react before finally standing up myself and walking to the door. Rebecca continued to stand in that same spot the entire time, turning to follow me out the door with her eyes. As I opened the door and headed outside, I looked back at her one more time and caught another glimpse of the necklace. Somehow, presumably from the force of her standing up, it had managed to move to a place of prominence on her appearance, instead of staying hidden. 
For a moment, I almost decided to go back inside and take the thing from her in an attempt to keep her from dwelling on it. But I let the thought pass and shut the door behind me. As soon as I got home, I immediately got on the internet to see if I could find anything similar to the necklace. Understandably, I couldn't get it out of my mind, and I was hoping that finding some sort of information on it might lead me to a way to help my friend. I couldn't find anything noticeably similar to the actual necklace, but the search improved after I started focusing on the design rather than on the thing as a whole. The faded image of the dog turned out to be remarkably close to that of a coyote in some Native American art on a museum website. There wasn't much information associated with the piece, but it depicted, in a somewhat archaic way, a coyote of sorts next to a disproportionate human. Further down, it showed another of the creatures being bowed to by what seemed to be adults. After looking more closely, it was the second creature that stood out to me. While the head and upper torso were the same as the coyote, the rest of the body was that of a human man. I remember letting out an actual gasp as I made the connection between this creature and the thing that Rebecca saw in her dreams. I tried calling her immediately, convinced that I had somehow solved her problem by making this completely random connection between a necklace and an extremely old piece of art. But she didn't answer her phone. I didn't even realize that it had gotten dark out. How long had I been doing research? And Scott's absence meant that there was nothing at the apartment to snap me out of whatever I had been doing. My stomach growled, reminding me that I hadn't eaten all day. How could I forget that? So I decided to make a quick sandwich before just going to bed. It was only Saturday, so I could go by Rebecca's the next day and just see her face to face. She may have still been mad at me for whatever reason, so a night of sleep would give her some time to cool down. That night was the first time I saw the creature for myself. It happened in a very similar way to what Rebecca had told me. In a dream, I rolled over to check the clock, thinking that I hadn't fallen asleep yet. And it was just... there. Just like the thing that I had seen online, there was a being covered in red fur, appearing to be exactly like an experiment to combine a wolf with a man had gone horribly wrong. For some unexplained reason, though, I wasn't scared. In fact, it cheered me up a little. I had been upset when I left Rebecca's house that day and was worried that something was happening with my friend. But the sight of this creature made me forget all of those terrible feelings. I remember staring at it for the longest time. I even smiled. After a lifetime of staring at it, I blinked. The sun was shining through the window of the apartment, and I was awake. I rolled in bed for a few long minutes, thinking about that dream. Finally, I grabbed the phone from my nightstand. There was a text from Scott asking how my day went, but there were also three missed calls and a voicemail from Rebecca. I checked, but my phone wasn't on silent, so I have no idea why I didn't hear it ring. I thought of calling her to see what was wrong, but I decided to check the voicemail first. It told me that I wasn't the one and it left. I don't know how, but I think it was meant for you. I 
I dressed as quickly as possible and drove over to Rebecca's house. I saw it through the tiny window at the top of the front door. I know I should have called someone first, but I needed to see it up close first. I grabbed the key she kept under the planter on her front porch and went inside. She was dead. It looked like she had tumbled over the stairwell from the second floor, and her neck was clearly broken. A few feet away from the body was her cell phone, and there was a huge crack across the front. The call must have ended as it fell to the ground. I looked at her as long as I could, but I didn't feel sad like I would have expected. It was clear to me that she was unwell, and maybe this was just how it had to be for her. That seems cold, sure, but whatever was happening in her life just wasn't meant for her. Maybe she couldn't handle that reality. I pulled out my phone to call the police, but before I dialed, I saw it. It was underneath her, but it was sticking out like a toy, beckoning to be played with. I know I shouldn't have, but I lifted up Rebecca's very broken neck and slid the necklace off her head. She wouldn't miss it, and she said it was meant for me anyway. I almost put it in my pocket, but I didn't see any reason why I shouldn't wear it. Even when the police got there, none of them would think anything of it. Even so, I put it down the front of my shirt and hid the chain with my collar after placing it around my neck. The police came and went, and the body was taken away. I played them the voicemail that Rebecca had left me in the night, but I told the police that I didn't know what it meant. I didn't see any reason to, as they would just want to see the necklace if I explained more than I had to. I mentioned that she had told me about hearing voices the day before, and one of the cops gave an understanding look after that. It all lined up with what they could see at the scene, so they went home. I went through my day that Sunday normally. I didn't see why anything should change simply because Rebecca inconvenienced my morning. Later that evening, I got a call from work that there was some sort of gas leak at the office and that we would be off with pay the next day. Pretty lucky, if you ask me. I fell asleep quicker than usual that night, the weight of the necklace around my neck. I didn't see any reason to take it off just for sleep, and its coolness actually felt nice on my skin. I saw him again that night, and I realized that it wasn't a dream. Even that didn't scare me, though, because I knew that I was the one he had been looking for. It was finally going to work out for both of us. Everything was going to work out. Scott came home the next morning, and I was ready for him. It was a little sad, sure, but that's what it needed from me. Just one by my own hand, and everything I could ever want would be mine. Ours. He promised. No repercussions. No explanations. Nothing. It would all work out. He promised. That's all he wanted. Just one.
College isn't for everyone. Like Emily, a girl who's dropped out of college and been unceremoniously cut off by her parents for doing so. Naturally, she has no choice but to get a job. It's important, however, that her new employment doesn't get in the way of her marijuana habit. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jeff Miller, it's not going to work stone that Emily has to worry about. It's what she starts to notice when she sobers up. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy and Atticus Jackson. So make sure your vape pen is fully charged if you want to get through the day. After all, you need a bit of encouragement to deal with warehouse work. About two weeks ago, I quit my job. I've barely covered my April rent, and I have no idea how I'll make maize, much less order in groceries or pay the electric bill. But there's no way I'm leaving my apartment. Not until things smell right. And maybe not even then. See, I withdrew from college just after spring break. I'm not proud of it, but I'd been hitting the bong heavy this semester and I'd missed more classes than I'd attended. So it was pretty much a given I was going to fail everything. My folks blew a gasket when I finally told them. My dad's final words to me before he hung up were, if you're going to spend all your time stoned, you can do it on your own goddamned dime. Who can blame them? I'm a fuck up. I own it. I knew that if I supported myself through the summer, I could probably convince my folks, and maybe even myself, that I'd turned a new leaf and could be trusted to re-enroll in the fall. But that meant I'd need to find a job. So I took a fat hit, planted my ass in my desk chair, and opened up Craigslist, looking for something I could do while blazed. Dishwasher, light janitorial, stocking, whatever. The very first listing wanted order pickers for some online store I'd never heard of, Miramax.com. I checked out the site, but it was confusing. Best I could tell, they worked as a secondary supplier for large internet retailers. Anyway, it sounded perfect. No thinking required. I could hit my vape pen on breaks, and with a little Visine, I should be golden. Pay was pretty good too, all things considered. They were offering $13 per hour, which was better than Amazon. I applied and, much to my shock, got a reply within an hour telling me to show up for work at 4pm that afternoon and to bring my social security card. No interview, no piss test, thank god, no nothing. Score. I decided to skip my afternoon sesh. Meeting HR completely lit on my first day didn't seem like a good idea. So after I packed a light dinner of chips and a sandwich, I grabbed a water bottle and took the number nine bus to Temple Street, part of town I didn't know at all. My phone told me I'd need to walk a few blocks to Miramax, which didn't seem like a big deal in the comfort of the little rat hole I called home, but when I got off the bus, I almost got right back on. The district was nothing but boarded up factories and crumbling warehouses. Even worse, the whole area smelled strongly of shit and rotting fruit. I felt like I was going to barf. 
I quickly decided that I'd make a better impression if I settled my stomach with a hit. Mildly high is better than vomit-flecked, after all. So I took a quick pull on my vape and followed my phone's directions. <clears throat> Mirmex's warehouse didn't look any different from the others, aside from the fact that the parking lot had some cars in it. A gray metal door on the far side was propped open, so I entered there. Inside, the smell was worse, but it changed radically every time I took a step. The rotting fruit scent was always in the background, but in the ten feet from the door to the receptionist's window, I smelled rancid meat, burnt hair, and, strangely, cinnamon toast. The last one wasn't so bad, really. There was no one behind the window, so I rang the bell. No one appeared, so I rang it again. Finally, after a third ring, a pasty-faced man lumbered into view. He stared at me glassy-eyed, and, I swear, the smell of body odor was so overpowering, it almost overcame the THC in my system. I wanted to take another hit. Instead, I showed him my social security card. Here for my first day? Emily Jenkins? He nodded, slowly, so I slid my card under the glass. He glanced at it and slid it back with some paperwork to fill out. It didn't take long to complete. Once I turned it in, he pushed a small tablet under the slot. Press that button to start. It's all self-explanatory. When you're done at midnight, just slide it back here. He disappeared to wherever he came from, and a buzzer sounded. I thought it was weird that there would be no training, but before I could think about it too hard, the door to my right opened up. I passed through, turning on the tablet as I walked. Inside, there was barely enough light to see, but I could tell the warehouse was cavernous. In the faint glow of my tablet, I could make out the outlines of giant wheeled ladders attached to towering shelves, and the smell was horrific. I had to take two hits from my pen to calm my stomach and my nerves. After a few more hits, the stench was just bearable enough to work. The tablet had a three-minute countdown timer at the top, and it was already going. A red arrow flashed pointing forward, so I walked briskly. It flashed right, then left, then straight, and after a few more turns, I realized I had no idea where I was. Some of that I could blame on the weed. The head change was really kicking in, but mostly it was just dark, disorienting, and absurdly smelly. My eyes were watering, it was so bad. Finally, the entire tablet glowed red with white text that said, Ladder 47, Shelf 6, Row 8, followed by a long item number. There were labels at the bottom of the shelf, so I pushed the ladder until it lined up with row 8 and climbed up about 15 feet to shelf 6. There was my package. A small brown box sealed with gray tape. No label aside from the number. The box was warm to the touch. I was more than a little creeped out at this point but I didn't have time to think about it because I had less than a minute to deliver the box... somewhere? 
I scanned the barcode as the tablet demanded and scurried down the ladder. I was running now, not paying attention to my surroundings at all, just following the red, blinking arrow on the screen and hoping to beat the timer. I turned a corner with 15 seconds left and saw the delivery station. Two pale, thin figures stood by a long conveyor belt, taking boxes from other frantic figures who emerged out of the maze of shelves. I guess we each had our own section to ourselves, because I hadn't seen a single soul until that very minute. The two figures scanned boxes, stamped them with what looked like a label, and tossed them on the belt, which carried them out of view into a large, dark hole in the wall. I tossed them my box, not even looking at their faces, and stopped to catch my breath. No such luck. The timer started counting down again the instant I heard the beep of my box being scanned. One more deep breath, and I trotted off to follow the red arrows. It went on like this for eight hours with no interruption. I never got a break. I ate my dinner on the go. I couldn't even check my phone because, in this gargantuan building, reception was zero. Thankfully, not only was I mostly alone, but the place was so dim and stinking, I could take hits whenever I wanted without fear of being caught to blunt the stench and squash my nausea. Even if my eyes were as red as the devil's dick, no one would be able to tell in this light. By the end of my shift, which I was aware of only because my tablet blinked green, I was barely able to walk. Thankfully, green arrows guided me back to the reception area, where I slid my tablet back under the glass and stumbled three blocks as best I could to catch the last bus. I was almost home before I realized I'd never received a schedule. I was too exhausted to worry about it, though, and figured I'd just show up the next day at the same time. The work sucked, but homelessness would suck a lot more. And I didn't think this stoner would be able to find anything else that paid more than minimum wage, which is a lot less than $13. I took a huge rip from my rigs, collapsed onto my futon, and slept like the dead. I woke up around noon, ate something, and decided that I may as well go to work completely blazed. I thought about calling Helen. She's my girlfriend, kind of. But after my wake and bake, I settled into Rick and Morty and forgot about texting anyone or doing anything at all. Thankfully, I'd set my phone's alarm for 3 p.m., so when it went off, I made a quick sandwich, filled my vape pen and water bottle, and ran to catch the bus. There were fewer cars this time, which was odd, but now that I was ripped, I didn't care. And the weed definitely improved the smell. I had to ring the bell half a dozen times before Zombie Boy appeared behind the glass, and he stared at me, seemingly uncomprehending, for what felt like forever. Um, the tablet? This nudged him from his stupor. He left to fetch one and slid it under the glass. Looked like I wasn't the only pothead working here. And so it went all week long. A frantic, stony sprint for eight hours, get home around 1am, sleep until noon, repeat. 
I can usually make my pen last a few days before refilling, but that place? Jesus, I was chiefing like every 20 minutes. I had to refill it with wax every day. It was the only thing that made the smells manageable. And not just the smells, if I'm being honest. The boxes were weird. Nothing to indicate what might be inside. Most of them smelled nice, like pancakes or warm taffy. But most of them were also warm, and occasionally it felt like something in them was moving. I chalked it up to materials shifting inside as I jogged, but it was unsettling. Zombie boys seemed more surprised every day to see me. I guess there weren't that many people who came back. Not me. I was a Viking. On Friday, I finally asked the guy behind the glass when I'd get a schedule. He just stared blankly, like the question made no sense. So I asked if I could take the weekend, at least. No response. I just rolled my eyes and turned on the tablet. When I was finally done at midnight, panting and exhausted, there was an envelope waiting for me by the window with my name on it. A check for $442 for the week after taxes, plus a $50 cash performance bonus. If I kept this up, not only would I be okay for money, but I'd also be in the best shape of my life, so long as my knees didn't wear out. I didn't see Helen over the weekend. Instead, I spent both days recuperating on my futon, eating cold cereal and smoking bowls. To be honest, when I wasn't high, I wanted to go back to work. It was weird, and not because I'm a lazy stoner, which I'm not. I can grind. I mean, how many people could put up with the week I'd just finished? Not many. I just get really anxious about school and life in general, and weed helps me cope. The problem was that it didn't feel like the desire came from me, you know? It felt like it was outside of me somehow, like I was a fish on a baited hook. So I tried to make sure I never really came all the way down. I only went out once to cash my check, pay rent, get some food and restock at the dispensary, which left me basically broke again. Helen texted me a few times, but I told her I was wiped from my new job and needed to rest. She was cool with it. We're not that serious anyway. Monday afternoon, Zombie Boy looked upset to see me, which frankly, was the first serious sign of human emotion I'd seen from him. But he gave me my tablet without a word, so I didn't mention it. Besides, I was re-energized and happily buzzing. I didn't need him harshing my mood. The shift started fine. I delivered 18 boxes in the first hour, which felt pretty good. But then, around 5pm, my vape pen got clogged and wouldn't draw. I didn't have a Q-tip or anything to fix it, and did not relish the idea of facing seven hours of hard labor while sober. But what could I do? I figured if it got really bad, I'd just say I was sick and go home. It wouldn't be far from the truth. The stench of this place would probably make it impossible for me to work. But that's not what happened. As I started to sober up, I noticed that the path the tablet had me follow smelled... good? Really good. 
like baking bread and a warm winter fire in the hearth. If I stepped off the path, though, just a few feet in the wrong direction, or even if I simply stood still for a moment, a revolting, suffocating reek of decaying onions and sewage enveloped me, making me want to hurl. I mean, it was crippling. I had to increase my speed to a quick jog just to stay ahead of it. I noticed something else, too. The other people that I saw delivering boxes to the conveyor belts didn't have tablets. And now that I wasn't messed up, I realized how thin they were. Their shoes were falling apart, and I swear, I saw one woman working barefoot. Their clothes were threadbare and soiled, and their skin was so pale. One African-American guy was so chalky, I thought he was covered in dust. But no, it was just his skin. It freaked me out, but I couldn't spend much time looking because the stench was driving me forward, pushing me to the next box. I felt an anxiety attack coming on, so I decided, fuck it, this is too weird, I'm out. But the moment I decided to leave... I realized I had absolutely no idea how to get back to reception, and even if I had remembered the way, I'd have never been able to stomach the odor. And part of me didn't want to leave. That's what scared me the most. A growing part of me wanted nothing more than to bathe in that wonderful, comforting scent of warm chocolate chip cookies on a crisp fall day. And I knew it was just a few steps ahead of me in the direction of the red flashing arrow. I was desperate, and in my experience, desperation is the true mother of invention. I put my tablet on the floor and sat down to untie my sneakers. Scented tendrils of infected flesh and swamp gas crept into the warm glow of buttered popcorn as I feverishly tore the plastic ends off my shoelaces chewed off some fuzz from my socks, and wove it around the plastic to create a crude dab tool. The foul smells were starting to dominate, churning my stomach and watering my eyes. In the glow of the tablet, I cleaned my pen as best I could and, just before I couldn't stand it anymore, I reassembled it, pressed the button five times, and inhaled. It worked. I chiefed and I chiefed and I chiefed, until I had completely quashed the urge to vomit, and the smell of the place was bearable once again. The others had to go somewhere, right? Surely one of them would go to the exit. So I double-timed it to the next package, and once I was back at the conveyor belt, instead of following the arrows, I set the tablet down on the floor and followed the scrawny white guy back into the warren of shelves. He scurried like a wounded animal, paying me no mind at all. I called out to him a couple of times, trying to get his attention, but he may as well have been deaf, so I gave up. One package after another, never stopping, never resting, never eating, never drinking. I followed him for hours, afraid that if I lost him, I'd never find a way out. My phone battery was at 10%, and though I still had no reception, I could see that it was 2 a.m., and I was on the verge of physical collapse. My water bottle was empty, and my sack dinner was long gone. My vape pen was surely almost empty. Thankfully, after delivering what turned out to be his last package around 2.30 a.m., the 
poor guy slowed his pace and took a different path, heading toward a new section of the warehouse. We passed a few other shriveled runners as we walked. He never turned around, never even looked at me, neither did the others. After a dizzying number of turns, we hit a wall and turned left. But instead of finding a door to the outside, he descended a narrow flight of stairs, the first I'd seen since I started working there. This was an exit? There were no lights, so I turned on the flashlight of my dying phone. He didn't seem to notice either the darkness or the flashlight. The corridor was narrow and rough, clearly dug straight out of the earth. The odor was stronger here. In fact, the scrawny guy seemed to give off his own scent. I got as close as I dared, and it seemed to emanate from his head. It wasn't unpleasant, but it wasn't nice either. Musty, maybe? I took another hit from my pen. The wax couldn't last much longer. I looked up from my hit, and he was gone. I panicked for a moment and shone the light all around. I hadn't noticed it before, but I saw that, along the bottom of the corridor, there was a line of dugouts on each side, just big enough for a thin person to crawl into. He had wedged himself in the nearest one, and I could see the dark outline of his body. I don't know why I shone my flashlight into the hole. I wish I hadn't. Inside, I saw that something wet and rubbery had surfaced from the earth and attached itself to the man's mouth. His eyes were open and vacant. A greasy yellow liquid leaked out of the seal between his flesh and the tube. That's not what sent me screaming, though. Emerging from a hole by his head, a mass of green, shiny beetles were scurrying over to his face, squeezing into and out of his ears and nose. It smelled like heaven, brownies and campfires and sex and warm sweaters. I fell back, vomited, and shined my light into the other holes. Most contained a person, each in the same condition. I ran in a blind panic back down the tunnel and up to the staircase. Once upstairs, I followed the wall until it hit a shelf, and then followed that line of shelves, sprinting, crying, and shaking, keeping the direction of the wall in mind at all times. It took me 20 minutes. I finally stumbled on the exit door, just as my phone hit 2%. I usually don't take Uber because I can't afford it, but I didn't care. I used the last juice I had to get a ride, and when she arrived, I fell into a dark, dreamless sleep for the entire trip home. I've been holed up in my apartment for more than a week now. Whenever I'm not high, I want to go back to immerse myself in those warm smells of home. So, I've been high all the time. So high that I can't move from the couch and barely have enough motivation to grab food. I'm down to my last couple packages of ramen and the last few bits of reclaim from my rig. There are packages outside my door. They started arriving the day after I left. I get two or three a day now. 
I can see them from my window. They're vibrating. And they smell wonderful. In our final tale, we meet a young couple whose relationship is on the rocks. As many couples do, they head on vacation to the beach to try and patch up their failing love life. When they spot a body on the sand, things begin to take a turn for the dramatic. But in this tale, shared with us by author Dan Leroy, it's when they discover that the body is a mannequin that the terror truly begins. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Addison Peacock, and Mick Wingert. So try not to get too attached, because some relationships are doomed to end in tears, especially when it involves the girl on the beach in our Indian summer. September sobbed outside the house, and the line between the sky and the sea was as messily blurred as a thumbprint on a child's watercolor. The more you tried to focus, the less clear it got, and everything seemed to come in waves, so much that you could almost get seasick indoors. And if that sounds a little too, I don't know, poetic, well then I apologize. I'm a writer, mea culpa. But even now when I think back on that week, Sobbed is still the first word that surfaces. The line between the rain battering the beach outside and what was happening in the house was pretty blurry too. No one was crying, I hasten to add. I can't prove anyone shed a tear all week, though there were a couple of times in the evening when we ate one of our mostly silent dinners in the low natural light of the dining room that faced the ocean that Claire's eyes looked red and raw. And of course, I don't know for certain what she was doing when I was sitting in the living room looking at the girl we found on the beach. When Claire invited me to stay at the house her parents had rented near Rehoboth, I took it as some divine sign that this was it. Even though all the other signs about us were pointing in the other direction, even though my gut had already made its prediction, I disregarded it all and went running toward the sand, toward the beach house where the two of us were going to stay for a week together, alone. Even if I knew it was quicksand, it wouldn't have slowed me down. Claire was a year behind me at school at WVU, but I hadn't noticed her until the beginning of senior year. At a fraternity party the previous August, she'd appeared from a crowd of people blocking the single bathroom. Tall, with a black pixie cut and turned up nose, and porcelain skin glowing against her dead Kennedy shirt. I'd had half a dozen watery beers, and felt sufficiently emboldened to try to talk to her. But then a stream of people surging between us turned into a river. By the time I crossed, she was gone. I saw her here and there on campus throughout the year, though she was never close enough, and I was never intoxicated enough 
to do anything but stare and write lyrics for songs that would never be sung, but would be scribbled in my notebook. Later, in the apartment I shared with two friends after I'd given up on another evening. That changed one night in May. A play I'd written had been given a staged reading, a very successful and funny one, if I do say, and even the head of the theater department, a guy with whom I'd had a pretty rocky relationship, came backstage afterwards, looking intently at me and pinching the skin between his nostrils, as he usually did, and whispered, let's talk. This is almost ready for the main stage. I went out afterward with the director, a big cynical Slovakian guy from New Jersey, and we got properly shit-faced to celebrate. Near the end of the evening, as we were staggering up the narrow staircase of a tiny basement bar, Claire's face appeared from the smoke. She stared at me, halting traffic on the crowded stairs. I saw your play. I didn't even speak. Just took her arm and led her back downstairs. In 20 minutes, we were making out at, and on, a table in the back, while the jukebox played Belle Biv DeVoe's Poison and other couples crowded onto the postage stamp-sized dance floor. School was almost over, but I drove six hours to see Claire at her parents' house outside Philadelphia several weekends that summer. There were moments that, in retrospect, betrayed the problems that come with such a whirlwind. Can you call it courtship? We had less in common than her punk t-shirts and asymmetrical haircut had led me to believe, not least of which was that her parents, who were married in name only, they had separate rooms, made more than my folks' combined annual income in approximately a week but they seemed to like me. More important, their casual attitude about where Claire was and what she was doing meant that sex kept us together all summer long, most of it right in her bedroom. At least, keeping us together was how it looked to me, a perpetually horny 21-year-old recent college graduate who'd finished his final class, an elective on Chekhov's comedies, in August, and had no job yet to keep him away from Rehoboth. Claire had school, of course, but her parents had reserved the house for an extended family reunion late that September. The house, isolated on a cove near the North Beaches, was open. When the reunion plans fell apart, her parents gave their blessing to the two of us taking it. Claire seemed excited, and I was sure that the hints of discontent, the half-finished arguments that pockmarked the summer like those weird wormholes that appear on the beach, would be smoothed out like the sand when the tide recedes. When the ocean pulled back, though, that's not what happened at all. The first night at Rehoboth went almost exactly as I'd scripted it nearly every day since the invitation. I arrived early in the evening after driving all day. Claire was waiting for me in the kitchen of the rental, a two-story gray clapboard place that had recently been renovated and really was just minutes from the beach as so many vacation homes advertise. We never made it upstairs. Not until much later, anyway. I sometimes wonder, even now, if the rest of the trip would have also followed my script if we hadn't found the girl the next morning. In loud, bright, and lucid moments, I know it wouldn't have. But on gray afternoons that slip uneasily into darker gray evenings, when the rain is lashing against the glass like handfuls of pebbles, I'm less sure. Clouds were hiding the sun blushing behind them when we began walking hand in hand down the beach. It wasn't seven yet. I squinted at what seemed like miles down the sand, but all I could see was a black dog, repeatedly racing to the water's edge and then stopping suddenly, as if listening. By ourselves at last. 
It was a cheesy thing to say, but I was 21 and in love and had watched too many John Hughes movies. Also, I felt the need to fill up a little of the unquiet silence, to make a sound to remind myself that in relation to the vastness around me, I still existed. We weren't by ourselves, though. As the lip of the ocean curled back to itself, Claire suddenly grabbed my arm, her nails digging in so hard that they left pale curls in my tan. With her left hand, she pointed. A girl lay in the surf, still and white. It took a second before I broke into a run, Claire following. Two seagulls strutted next to the body, and one gave it a hard peck. The sound was wrong. All of this was wrong, I realized, as my knees dug into wet sand and I felt her stiff arm for a pulse. The girl was made of plastic, a mannequin somehow, that had emerged like Aphrodite from the sea with all her limbs intact. She wasn't nude, though. She had on a Cleveland Browns t-shirt, tight and shrunken against her torso. Her blonde hair was a lighter green than the strands of seaweed threaded through it. But it was her face that, I guess not surprisingly, got me. The features were faded yet still intact, and I struggled to identify the expression which seemed so distant. But don't all mannequins have distant expressions? Brad? I hopped up immediately, as if I'd been caught passing notes in class or doing something even worse. I began dislodging the sand embedded in my knees, unsure how long I'd been looking at the girl. It's a mannequin. Uh-huh. For some reason, like the black dog, I looked out to sea. It wasn't like I thought I was going to see the boat she'd fallen out of. Was it? I've seen a lot of stuff wash up on the beach, but... Weird. And kind of gross. Her hand was on my arm again, guiding me away. And it suddenly hit me that she meant to leave the mannequin behind, lying there in the sand. I scooped the figure up. She was lighter than I'd imagined, almost like a big, hollow Barbie. We can't just let her drown. Again, I mean, besides, she'd be the perfect decoration for the house. I can't believe how forced the humor in my voice was. Was I smiling or wincing? Oh my God, Brad. Claire dropped her hand and backed away. But I remember vividly that she was smiling. Then... After she dried out on the porch, I put the girl on a couch under the bay window in the living room. I'd picked the seaweed out of her hair. I thought there'd be more of a smell, but there wasn't. You are seriously fucked up. Claire eyed me and the girl as she chain-smoked Marlboro Reds. I shrugged, again, working harder than necessary to sound lighthearted. Something to talk about when we have the neighbors over for bridge. Claire shook her head, stubbed out a cigarette, and went upstairs. There were no neighbors. That was part of the beauty of the place. From the windows in the front of the house, in the living room and dining rooms, you could see the beach stretching far into the horizon. There were a few condos along that expanse, and I knew that not far away, maybe a couple miles at most, people were probably jammed on top of one another in boxy units smaller than your average motel room. But we didn't see them in our cove. Just the Indian summer skies and the rush and retreat of the sea. The gulls observed and commented occasionally, and every now and then I saw the black dog from that morning, mimicking the tide. I watched him closely for a while. Was he really listening for something at the water's edge? Or was that just my imagination from afar? Maybe that was why I brought the girl home. Maybe I was secretly admitting that we were more isolated than I thought, and I needed the company. Or maybe Claire and I needed the company because just a couple days in, 
Our language was starting to fail. After watching the dog, I went upstairs to the master bedroom. Claire was sprawled across the bed, still smoking and reading Vogue. I lay down next to her and slid a hand under her white t-shirt, feeling all the smooth way of her back. She neither flinched nor responded. How about a swim? I hoped the change into her swimsuit would lead where it had led sometimes this past summer. Later, maybe. An awkward beat. So, school is good so far? I guess. Boring classes. There's a lot of pretty hot guys in existential lit, though. Sometimes Claire would say something like this and then observe me from under her delicately plucked eyebrows to see if she'd made me jealous. She did, but at least the game was something we shared. This time, she didn't even look up. I felt a little like a piece of the driftwood we'd seen littering the beach that morning. The most frustrating thing about when language breaks down is the sense you get beforehand that whatever you're about to say is going to be wrong, but you go ahead and say it anyway. If you're into homos in black, I guess. I yawned, then grabbed her around the waist. Lucky for you, I'm not one of them. She wriggled free of me without making eye contact. Get off. I'm trying to read this article. Mentally, the warning signs flashed in a hundred-point neon letters. You are about to say something that is going to make things much worse. I ignored it. Is that the thanks I get for driving ten and a half hours to bring you this? I began slowly unzipping my camouflage shorts. Claire snorted. It wasn't a joking snort. I could tell. She rolled onto her side away from me. Why don't you go downstairs with that? Maybe your girlfriend will want it. I made dinner that night. Some pasta with mushrooms I'd bought at the fresh market on the way in. Claire wasn't hungry and stayed in the bedroom. So I ate by myself, looking out the windows occasionally to see if I saw the black dog, but he was gone. The girl lay on the sofa staring, I assumed, at the ceiling. It began raining as I loaded the dishwasher. By the time I was done, the sea looked choppier. I'd planned to go for a walk, but instead I went into the living room. I turned on the overhead light, pulled up a straight back chair to the couch, and picked up the girl. What I was looking for, I wasn't entirely sure. I guess I wanted to see if I could find any clue about where she'd come from. Which sounded stupid even then, considering that the only evidence was the tattered brown shirt she wore. Her only clothing. It didn't even have a tag. The team logo in big, funky letters looked older. Like maybe it was from the 70s. And maybe it was. Could she have been out at sea that long? Or under it? It makes me sound like a pervert now, but at the time I thought very little of turning her body over and carefully examining it for any identifying marks. The company that made her the name of the store where she worked, and there was nothing. I set her gently back down on the couch. Her eyebrows, arched like Claire's, were chipped, but the eyes, while faded, had stayed intact. Once they must have been blue, but they'd softened into gray, like the light outside, reflecting the wash of clouds and water. I found myself searching them for something, as I'd searched outside for the dog. I didn't find it. When I went to bed, Claire smelled like smoke and rolled away from me again, in her sleep. Or that's what I told myself. At some point that night I dreamed. I was walking down a familiar street, High Street in Morgantown, the main drag, but it was now underwater. We were holding hands as we passed Daniels, the store where most college students spend their loan money on Levi's and Topsiders. 
In the big display window, I saw a girl modeling a vintage Cleveland brown t-shirt snug against her trim torso. Even in the dream, it seemed odd. I turned to face my companion and we smiled. Then we kept walking, leaving Claire to stare out into the watery middle distance from the window. Can we get this skanky thing out of here now? At least Claire was talking to me again. I started to make another joke about the girl, but just couldn't find the strength to fake humor. Yeah, we will. I mean, it's no big deal. Claire motioned to the darkening morning outside. If I have to stay inside all day, I'm not going to spend it with that. In my parents' house. Okay, okay, you win. I slowly picked up the girl and deposited her across two chairs on the porch, feeling the sting of salt in the wind whipping across my face. You understand. I went back inside. Claire had gone back upstairs. I waited for a while, but she didn't come back down. She was asleep when I went to check on her early in the afternoon. It started to rain, harder than yesterday, and the waves were getting bigger. I went out on the porch to bring the girl back inside. Up the beach, I was pretty sure I saw the dog again, listening. I was listening inside the house, too. Not to the TV, not even to check the weather. For some reason, that had never occurred to me. But to music, sometimes. The CDs I'd brought in from my car, mostly. Actually, just one CD. Miles Davis' Kind of Blue, over and over, while the surf pounded outside and the rain made rhythmic counterpoint, while Miles' muted trumpet leaked out the speakers and across the waters. It's a classic. I spoke to the girl who was still staring at the ceiling. There was one other song, too, Indian Summer, by a British band called The Dream Academy. It was the only song I really liked on the CD, but I liked it a lot with its timpani rolls and mass vocals and bittersweet lyric about a couple who spent a few days by the ocean as the relationship came apart. It had been in the back of my mind driving up here. A cautionary tale, perhaps, as I searched the song now for clues. But there was nothing in it about a mannequin who washed up in the tide. Claire made an appearance downstairs one afternoon. She said nothing about the girl on the couch, but walked out onto the porch. The rain had slowed, at least relative to the last few hours. I'm going for a walk. She grabbed a hoodie off the chair and pulled her shirt over her head to change. Claire was braless, and she took her time with the hoodie, her small, perfect breasts pale in the wan light. I was pretty sure this was for me, a deliberately unsexual sexy move. We hadn't slept together since the first night, and this was a display I was only meant to observe. No touching, just looking. A little like a mannequin. It was the next to last night. The day had been the same, except we'd both slept even later than usual. And I'd slept downstairs, on the other couch next to the girl. I dreamed again of her, which I guess wasn't a complete surprise. At first there were no characters in the dream, just the sense of a long descent through darkness and increasing pressure. But at some point the pressure eased, and the scene lightened to green. I saw her then, seated in a cheap camp chair that resembled a throne, somehow regal in her tight shirt. The seaweed rewoven like serpents into her undulating hair. I was there too, but I was simply observing. I felt I was some sort of courtier at best, separated from the girl by a wall of watery glass. Did she move, finally? Did she cock her head? I couldn't tell for certain. Was she listening? 
for some, for something? I knew somehow that she was, and I spun around or tried to, but the water slowed my movement. When I finally was able to look over my shoulder in the glowing green light, I awoke. My watch, glowing a dimmer green, read 11.30 a.m., though time had mostly disappeared as a concept by this point. All I understood about time was that we had little of it left together. Did I mean Claire and me, though? Or me and the girl? For dinner, I brought in some Chinese, which we ate in near silence. At one point, trying to desperately spark some conversation, also to gauge where I stood, I shoved a travel magazine across the table. It was open to a spread of vacation homes along the salt marshes of Hilton Head. There's a place we ought to think about going next summer. Claire didn't look up from her own magazine. I'm hoping to be in England next summer for grad school. So that was that. We sat there, at opposite ends of the dark wooden dining table, her reading and me pretending to read, as the night drew in and the rain picked up. This time it was the hardest it had come down since we'd arrived. It was almost like the forces outside were getting stronger to compensate for the stillness in the house. There was thunder from some distance away, over the ocean, but the violence of the waves was more immediate. It was continuous, layered roar, and the occasional crackle of rain against the windows made even Claire jump once. Once or twice the lights flickered, and my mind flashed to the thought of the three of us in the dark house at the edge of the sea, and I was sure I heard, from somewhere above and beyond the pounding and rising wind, a shrill bark that morphed into a howl. The knocking at the door came just after the lights went out. When the power failed, I heard Claire sigh and set down her magazine. Silently, she went into the kitchen. When she returned, she was holding in both hands a thick candle that smelled like cinnamon and made a crescent of light around her chin. She set the candle on a magazine in the middle of the dining room table. It was less like knocking and more like someone hitting a piece of wood against the door. On opposite ends of the thin river of light that connected us across the table, we looked at each other for what seemed like the first time in days. I got up. Claire looked afraid, but she didn't try to stop me. From out the bay window in the living room, I could see only a dark, bulky shape outside on the porch. Rain blew into my face when I opened the door a crack. After a moment's unnerving silence, the dark shape spoke. I was told you found a girl on the beach. The voice came from beneath a black bucket hat. There was some sort of accent, but the voice was neither harsh nor unpleasant, just odd. I nodded, then realized the man on the doorstep probably couldn't see me. Yes. I cleared my throat. I hadn't done much talking this week. May I see her? I nodded again, and the man awkwardly made his way across the threshold. He seemed to be an inch or two taller than me, maybe a shade over six feet. He was wearing a long duster buttoned at the throat, and water ran off it in rivulets, collecting in puddles in the little entryway. I understood suddenly that he was waiting. I motioned to the right. The girl was still lying on the couch, looking up at shadows playing across the living room ceiling. They were there, I saw, because Claire had followed us in with the candle. She stood behind us in the archway. She's probably glad, I thought suddenly, and I admit a little bitterly. When I looked back at the man, he had both arms extended. I stood dumbly for a moment. Brad? Then it hit me. I picked up the girl one last time, gently, and placed her atop the man's outstretched arms. 
The light caught one of those faded gray eyes, and a gust of wind from somewhere in the house made the candle flicker, and it made her appear to wink. The man seemed to have trouble carrying her, light as she was, and I wondered if he were much older than he looked. I thought for a moment I should offer to help him to his car, but the words died in my throat. At the door, the man suddenly swung his whole body around. Painfully, it seemed. I am grateful. The candle Claire held behind me lit him for just a second, and I caught a glimpse of one eye beneath the bucket hat. There was an unmistakable tenderness in that eye, I thought, but it was also unmistakably painted onto his impossibly smooth face. If I tell you I watched the man, carrying the girl stiffly in both arms, walk back to the sea, that would be a lie. But when I looked out the bay window a moment or two later, they were both gone. The rain had suddenly quieted, and only an empty beach stretched out into the darkness. A dog gave a single sharp bark from somewhere far away, and then was still. Claire and I slept together in the master bedroom that night, though nothing happened between us, including conversation. We just held one another as the candle guttered on the nightstand, both of us listening to the ocean, which had nothing else to tell us. I didn't dream. In the morning, the power was back on and the beach from the window appeared to be swept clean. The normal debris of a storm reclaimed somehow by the sea. I was going to go for one final walk after I packed, but thought better of it. Claire and I kissed goodbye in the living room, then broke the kiss, our foreheads touching for a long time. I said I would call and I did. She said she would call and she didn't. There were details to be worked out still, but the big decisions had already been settled. As I walked out to my car, damp sand spilling over the rims of my sperries, I looked up at the beach one final time. There was a black shape near the horizon line that appeared to be a dog, running back and forth to the foam of the morning surf. I put my bags in the trunk and didn't wait to see if he stopped at the water's edge to listen. What if you worked together in the same window for years and were discarded at the same time when the store that owned you finally went out of business? And you got a chance to start a new life when the garbage barge on which you were passengers dumped some of his cargo illegally or went down in an Atlantic storm? Or is it possible that the ocean is really vast enough that you could meet someone like you one day, drifting purposeless, and find meaning, find refuge from the crushing vastness of the world around you both? And is there some greenlit grotto there, fit for a queen and her king, who will rule together for a thousand years on camp chair thrones? I've wondered these things sometimes. Long after there was any reason that they should, they gave me hope for me and Claire. Or maybe it's more accurate to say that they simply gave me hope. When I tell this story, and I sometimes do, wouldn't you if you had a story like this? It gets consistent reactions. You brought a freaking mannequin into the house and spent all your time with it? When you were all alone with your completely hot college girlfriend, guys will say. Especially if I use an old photo of Claire as visual aid. They look with exaggerated scrutiny, take another long drink of beer, then slap me on the back incredulous. Dude, how'd you expect her to act? Well, Brad, the ladies I've known will say, amused, maybe a little intrigued, but with more than a hint of matronly disapproval. Now I know how a rich and successful playwright can somehow stay unmarried. I smile and agree. What else can I do? And if a dog barks somewhere on the beach that's only a couple of blocks from my place, I listen just a moment before I respond. She was the one, I say finally, with just a hint of dramatic flourish, who got away. I don't bother to clarify the pronoun. Let them wonder. 
I still do. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.